everyone could hear our pretty little voices. Mm-hmm. Really pretty little voices. Yeah. Right. Sounds like such a Brian dude. Right. Like, we got the tolerable Brian here, and then the not so tolerable. Ecuadorian Brian. Right, that one. But we're going to start. So, welcome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful way to start. <laughs> welcome back to the George Kennedy Podcast. Um, this is Samaj Vidal, your host. Um, I am here with Wainwright, Brian Jones, and Brian. Um, I normal Brian. Normal Brian. Brian and an Ecuadorian, Ecuadorian Brian. 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 Um, hello, Brian Rivas. How are you? <laughs> I've been gone for two weeks, and that's what I get. Well, now there's two Brian's. We have Brian. to figure that out. Yeah. There's, there's a lot. Distinguish it. Somehow we're saying that we have Brian Jones. And the, oh, just Brian. He's but here. think about yeah. it. It provides you extra spice. <laughs> 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 that Ecuadorian spice is no Italian. joke. It's no joke, Italian, especially in the summer. Yeah. Well, just we, once you get oh, to tan yeah, Just go to Miami. You'll get a lot of it there. <laughs> <laughs> Steering the ship back on course. we got a pretty full podcast today. We're going to start off the podcast talking about the Russia-Ukraine war specifically. Um, we're going to start off talking about propaganda. We're going to go into um, actual military maneuvers. And then we're going to end the Russia section uh, by talking economics. Then we're going to segue really quickly about a 10-minute segment into the Australian election results. Of course, Australia had a major um, election, general election, uh, these past couple weeks. And then we're going to end the podcast with a discussion of Cuba's intelligence operations, specifically in the U.S. And Brian Rebus, or Ecuadorian Brian, is going to lead uh, the talk there. But anyway, going back to uh, Russian propaganda during the Ukraine war, there's been some interesting developments. Um, I think it was June 4th, but there was a Ukraine human rights chief and main propagandist who was employed by Zelensky named uh, Ludmila Denisova, and she has been fired after outside groups were able to uncover zero evidence to support the multiple allegations of mass rape Denisova lodged against invading Russian forces. So, I mean, it's been in the news in, in random times, but generally, if any... Western consumer of news hears about atrocities in the Russia-Ukraine war, they automatically go to something like there's always stories about mass rapes of uh, teenage Ukrainian girls by Russian soldiers. And recently that's come out as being completely false and mostly made up by Ukraine's um, main propagandists. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a very fascinating development, but definitely it has some Bad, some bad implications here, particularly of what the Kremlin propagandists can do with this. You know, there we've seen the pictures, we've seen the actual images of more of the legitimate war crimes that the Russians have committed. You know, mass mass bombings, executions, medical signs of you know mm-hmm. autopsies demonstrating torture. You know, bodies littering the streets of civilians. So you know. Unfortunately, that it's it's really really not good that this Ukraine that this Ukrainian was able to do this because now it puts the Ukrainian credibility in serious jeopardy, which means the Kremlin can put a new layer of doubt on any of their other actual war crimes they've been committing. Well, see, I looked at it, this is in a different way. I looked at it as kind of revealing, not not a mistake by Ukraine policymakers, but this this was an active proponent of their way of countering. Russian warfare was on the public information um, sector. They, they've been very good about, the Ukraine's, I mean, Ukraine's, they've been very good about presenting 
the West with information that is completely false, but everyone is willing to buy. And we've mentioned it before, we've mentioned Snake Island, which turned out to be completely false. We've mentioned the ghost of Kiev, who was actually a ghost. There was no, there was no guy. You know. Speaking of which, I want my $30 back for buying three shirts that said ghost of Kiev when I thought that the damn thing was true. And that's what I'm saying. Exactly. The Ukrainians are masters at this. Everyone's talking about the Russians being good at hybrid warfare. The Ukrainians have found a way to ensnare Western minds with stuff that sounds good or sounds plausible, but is completely false. Ecuadorian Brian. Wow. <laughs> we got two of them. That, 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 How about we just go with last names? How's that? Jones okay. and Rebus. We'll go Brian Jones will be Jones and Brian Rebus will be Rebus. Jones and Rebus. That makes me feel slightly better. Anyway, <laughs> um, no, so the thing, well, that's the thing. With Ukraine, they've had up to eight years to be able to perfect this craft. And the reason I say that is because if you look, I'm going to say it again. Back in 2013, um, the Russians, they held the dom- They were holding a lot of the dominant space when it came to disinformation warfare with the invasion of Crimea as well as other things. Hell, there's still things that you'll believe about mm-hmm. when it comes to that. But um, because of that, Ukraine has learned its lesson from that. Not just like militarily, but it's learned from its information. There's more Ukrainian news sources now than there were back in 2014, especially ones that are premiering in English. Yeah. So they have learned a lot of their lessons, and they are using that to their full advantage now because Russia has invaded, and especially they have the victim card. So oh, that's yeah. even more so for the propaganda campaign and for disinformation, disinformation, whatever you want to call it. The, the Ukrainians have to be very careful, though. Yes, they have the victim card. It's very well observed by you, Brian Rivas, but they can't abuse it too much and become like the boy who cried wolf. Mm-hmm. And we all know that story. If they cry wolf too much, then eventually Western news consumers will be like, why do we trust you? Why are you any better than the Russians? Wait, and that's in there, and that's the... Well, I mean, we saw with um, Atlas News on their app that there was a news that came out, a news report that Ukrainians are starting to sell our AGM javelins on a black market. Gee, who would have guessed ah. not having any ability to track weapon ah. systems would ever come back in our that, face? That's crazy. Yeah. Um, but... We talked about this, I think it was one podcast or two podcasts ago, when we stated, well, I think one of the strategies of Russia is to literally wait until voting populations in Western Europe and in the United States say enough is enough. We've sent you billions of dollars of weapons, equipment, and assistance, and you constantly keep on recycling the same war news stories. We're done, we're done with it, and now we're seeing midterms are coming up, and we already had people like Henry Kissinger come out and say to America and Western Europe, hey, just give Russia these, these, um, these land concessions, so then we can just get beyond this and move on with the new structures of Europe. That, that's a great segue into the, the economics portion, which Brian was going to go into. Because you, you've, you've been doing some study on this, and you said that the Russian currency has rebounded. It's, it's healthier now than it was before the invasion. Is that correct? So the last times when I remember checking the Russian currency, this was right before the war started. If I'm correct, it was about 70 rubles equal to a dollar. Mm-hmm. Now it's about, I believe, 65 to 62 mm-hmm. per dollar. And that is sort of mind-boggling. We kind of we did a little bit of research right before we just started recording, and we figured out it's because of rising fuel prices and commodities being sold by Russia to countries that have not sanctioned them. Mm-hmm. 
And that's an interesting thing because we, like on, here in the West, we get a lot of news saying, oh, Russia's reeling economically from everything. But it's like if their currency is doing fine, that's showing a sign of economic, of economic strength coming up. I'm not saying that everyone is now hunky-dory and feeling better, but still, it means something. Mm-hmm. But the – actually, no, you, I'll say my thing after you. So right now, it sounds just from what we've assessed that Russia – not in terms of like what's going on exactly in the battlefield, but in terms of propaganda, in terms of economic statecraft, they're not doing as bad as a lot of people predicted. They're, they're, they're bouncing back and they're recovering. Go ahead, Brian. Read the it. other thing is Russia may actually have a card to use for negotiations of any kind. Which is? Food. Clarify. So, ever since the Ukraine war has started, Russia has been blockading Ukrainian ports from being able to sell grain, which Ukraine helps to provide 30% of around the entire world. As well as with all the sanctions going on in Russia, Russia hasn't been able to uh, trade fertilizer, which it provides, I forgot the exact amount, I think it's somewhere in my notes here, but quote uh, 30, 60%, somewhere around there. And because of that, it is affecting, it is affecting not just the Russian and the Ukrainian economies, it's affecting economies in Lebanon. It's affecting economies in the Middle East, North America, Asia, everywhere, because farmers need that fertilizer. And also, a bunch of countries in the Middle East need that grain and wheat. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the UN has already said that there is a food crisis that is already forming, and it's starting to affect countries such as in Africa, mm-hmm. where 14 countries in near Eastern Africa already import most of their food from Ukraine and Russia. And then we already experiencing protests in Sri Lanka over food shortages. And food is one of those major... We said this in the past podcast. You said this, Samaj. Was food is linked heavily to to social stability. Mm -hmm. And the longer that the food crisis stands or lasts, it could affect a lot of nations that don't have as much food security as others. And obviously here in the West, we are having experiencing higher prices. Anyway. We see that in Taco Bell restaurants when you get your food wrong. You're just like, I want to see a manager. You say no. And then what happens? They just like go berserk. That's awful. It's like a two-piece combo. Imagine if now your whole country, they have lack of two-piece combos. (laughs) (laughs) Samaj's world star reference does hold water. (laughs) Think of it it that way. Like if your go-to is like a 99-cent biscuit from Popeye's, that's like what you live off of on a daily basis and then you go to the same pie pies one day and they don't have the 99 cent biscuit your life and you're no hungry right. your life has no meaning as now you're in that Maslow pyramid <laughs> 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 I'm looking at you I can understand because that's my fault when McDonald's got rid of the chicken selects I just Everybody felt wrong everyone went crazy but to go back to the point um, because um, in the, that um, Brian Rebus made a good point um, and then I'll give it to you, Jones. Um, remember, this was a few weeks ago where Putin had sent out a statement and it was like, oh, Russia is not to be blamed for rising agricultural prices. We're not the ones that's prohibiting Ukraine essentially from exporting their grain. I'm like, dude, you have a whole fleet on the coast blocking export agricultural exports. But that goes to the point of that is a tool for agriculture. 
energy is another one. Um, and just a brief moment, well, not a brief moment, but quickly, that OPEC, uh, OPEC Plus, are thinking about suspending Russia from the oil production deals. In addition to Russia already indicating that they expect oil production for this year to be down anywhere between 17 and 20 to 22 percent, which is crucial mm-hmm. for sustaining uh, Russia's stability. Go ahead, Jones. Yeah, well, as, as beautiful as your Taco Bell uh, <laughs> was. He went from Taco Bell to Popeyes. I don't yeah. know if KFC was in there. We talked about McDonald's a little bit. So but, McDonald's was, go ahead, Jones. But yeah, you know, on a more, I guess, depressing note, you know, okay. these a lot of these countries in, in Africa, in the Middle East, they are already quite volatile. Mm-hmm. You know, they already had their bouts with famine and other... Mm-hmm you know, conflicts and ethnic and national tensions, you know, we saw this in Iraq after major famine in 2013, Mm -hmm. you know, that helped, you know, the Islamic State rise. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's some serious strategic, geopolitical, sheer security consequences that come out of these types of famines. You know, we could have a lot of secondary results, secondary conflicts, secondary... Mm-hmm. Ter- growth of terrorist organizations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's these. Even if it's a war, you know, in you in Ukraine in Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. it still has global knock-on effects for so many people. I agree. Well, like I said, I mentioned earlier with what's happening in Sri Lanka right now. They because of both COVID as well as partial effects from the U- war in Ukraine. There's shortages of food medicine and other basic needs over there right now and it's causing massive protests where people are actually figuring out that the country could become lawless yeah i might over exaggerate a little bit there but my point is like we there's some fears that this could affect other countries that are small time especially because sri lanka isn't that poor it has higher gdp per capita than some other nations i'm just trying to remember which ones but um it's not sri lanka isn't exactly it's not afghanistan it's not, it's not Somalia. And that's another country they're saying they're fearing because there's already a famine going on after Taliban took over. Yeah. That's the, and the one thing I find even funnier was two things. This involves Russia. One, uh, Russia's already going to some of these countries like, hey, we'll give you some grain from the silos we took from Ukraine. <laughs> it's true. And like each, one of them was Egypt who's actually dealing with some problems because they import most of their grain from Ukraine. They declined it. Uh, but other than that, the other thing is the Russians say, oh, we can lift the blockade. You, uh, The EU just has to get rid of all the sanctions against us. Mm-hmm. And they're using this already as a weapon to benefit them in this case. Yeah, they're using all of these more political and economic tricks because, you know, it's kind of ground to a halt here on the battlefield in Ukraine. You know, they've adapt- I will say the Russians have adapted significantly. You know, not quite the sending, you know, rushing all their tanks headfirst into killing fields. You know, they they they're still like you know sacrificing a lot of their guys' as pawns in these little movement to contact things. But you know, they're still able to get grids off and use their main weapons, which is their artillery assets, and just hammer Ukrainian yeah. positions, Ukrainian civilians too. So you know. On both sides here, we're seeing the casualties rack up. You know, thousands of dead on each side, thousands of civilians gone, billions of dollars of equipment mm-hmm. destroyed or down the drain. You know, it's, it's definitely taking its toll. 
and you know the, the Russians are making slow, steady advances, kind of westward. But you know they're still meeting fierce Ukrainian resistance. There's still a few sporadic counterattacks. So you know it's a little slower or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Russian forces they still control large swaths of eastern and southern Ukraine, and. I'm going to hold to my original prediction. I truly believe after I saw that retrograde away from uh, Kharkiv and Kiev by Russian forces, I think the Russians are going to occupy the east and the south, maybe go a little bit closer to Odessa, try and cut off, try and make Ukraine a landlocked country, essentially. And then they're going to negotiate. They're going to use economic means, as we talked about. They're going to use other tools, diplomatic tools, to negotiate a situation where maybe Crimea remains part of Russia, these different breakaway republics, Donetsk and Mudans, mm -hmm. right? They become independent, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of like the Transnistria and uh, the, the two uh, Transnistria, Abkhazia, and yeah. South Ossetia. Yeah, South Ossetia in, in Georgia. It's going to follow that model. I think that's what we're going to see eventually. But for now, as Brian Jones said, on the military battlefield, it's all kind of tick for tat. And I think it will be until uh, Russia's sustainment enterprise catches up with what's been done. So you'll kind of notice there's like massive spurts where, okay, the, the Russian army makes massive advances and it stops. And then the Ukrainians kind of attack, fritter away a little bit of those gains. And then the Russians will come back through again and make some more gains in like a month or two after logistics and sustainment enterprise has caught up with the military action on the ground. That's the thing. And going back to our conversation about uh, earlier about Russia, they are patient. They tend to be patient. Mm -hmm. um, I remember there was an interview with one of the Russian, a Russian official where they already said, right now they're expecting for the West to be done with the war and not make a country war by default. Well, they could have got a lot of stuff going on at home. Like, the gas yeah. is 539 a gallon. You're not going to give them any happy oh, don't yeah, and that, That's what the Russians are banking on instead of, you know, there's a few other, you know, they're, they're trying to count on, you know, the West losing interest in the war mm -hmm. and that they can eventually move in. You know, they're, they're, they're really making a massive gamble here, you know, hoping that the Ukrainians will eventually, you know, kind of collapse and give way. Well, they have, and then the negotiations. Oh, the Russians really have nothing to lose now at this point. Well, that is until and some of the bigger weapons start showing up. You know, we got things like the HIMARS that are rolling in, you know, which puts their strategic level weapons at risk. You know, those Iskander, some of those other Iskander positions, those BM-30, those big rocket artillery positions, those are at risk with some of these new artillery things coming in. I agree. Um, before we kind of then pivot to... Australia. Uh, yeah, I just want to give an overall view of going back to 2014 of kind of like what Russia acquired. Um, a lot of people say like, yeah, you know, they got in Crimea and then um, the sea was off and so on and so forth. But looking at where they have essentially occupied now in relation to Crimea and Azov, there's a book called To Rule Your Razor Waves that came out in like 2019, 2020. Um, but I'm going to read a little bit from this book to put it into even more um, kind of a lens of importance as to what Russia actually gained um, from this strategic area. Um, so this is in the, the second chapter called um, Russia... Maritime Europe and the emergence of the Black and Baltic Seas. And it states that essentially, now that Russia controls Crimea and the Kerch Strait into the Sea of Azov, 
it will have a greater competitive edge over other regional powers for the Black Sea maritime trade and routes. By some estimates, 40% of the world's wheat shipments come from the Black Sea region. Mm -hmm. Ukraine in particular is known for its wheat exports as well as corn, steel, and other natural goods. Uh, however, Russia hopes to financially squeeze uh, Ukraine now that it controls more of its port, sea routes, and coastlines. Mm -hmm. Additionally, uh, and this is where it's sort of gotten interesting, then we talked about energy resources. Um, all of the areas, so that, well, before I get to that, is that since its uh, takeover of Crimea back in 2014, Russia has targeted Ukraine's coastline and nationalized one of its natural gas companies and another point of contention between the two nations. Uh, now, Russia controls much of Ukraine's exclusive economic zone and has uh, nationalized a subsidiary of a company called Neftogas. Um, through that, uh, through Neftogas, uh, they have a subsidiary that's valued at about 100, uh, at $1 billion for growing output and production levels. Furthermore, when we're talking about now the Sea of Azov, we're talking about something called the Palas oil and gas field. Uh, projections estimate that Palas possesses approximately 75 billion cubic meters of natural gas and about 400 million tons of oil. Mm -hmm. Russia also expanded into the Sea of Azov to the north of Crimea. It's unclear uh, who will continue this field exploration, but in total, Russia's takeover of Ukraine's Black Sea Shelf assets are conservatively valued at about $40 billion. So just from the occupation of Crimea, Russia was able to essentially long-term acquire essentially a $40 billion investment. And now with their now physical land uh, strategic positionings on the areas that they're occupying and essentially taking that entire area under occupation, we're looking at Russia seizing the former Soviet breadbasket, their former munitions um, zone, industrial zone, um, shipbuilding yards, um, in addition to strategic positionings to then potentially um, push back in some ways Turkish maritime presence. Uh, we know that even though sometimes Russia and Turkey um, can be on the same page, especially when it comes to the Middle East in some ways, especially Syria, um, we know historically they've always clashed when it came to the Black Sea. And the only nation in that region that could particularly go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, at least submarine-wise or maritime-wise, is Turkey, as far as Black Sea nations. Um, hence why it's always very crucial, no matter how we don't like Erdogan, um, it's always very crucial to make sure, at least maritime-wise, Turkey remains on NATO America side instead of a neutral Turkish alignment or a Russia leaning security um, side. But I'll leave it at that one. Um, we talked about that for like 23 minutes. So um, we're going for about the next 10 minutes. We can talk about what the hell is going on in Australia. The Australia general elections. Well, this is more my wheelhouse. I mean, it doesn't have too much to do with U.S. national security, but it's important we kind of expand away from Eastern Europe every once in a while here. So the Australian general elections, which were held um, over, the, over the past month, it was really a contest between um, Australia's uh, former ruling coalition government, um, which was composed of the larger liberal and the smaller national parties, 
um, that had been in office for about nine years or three terms. And then it was a contest between them and then the Labour Party, which is the most important um, Australian opposition party in terms of votes and, and policymaking potential. Um, the Australian general election campaign was really low on policy analysis and high on character analysis. So Scott Morrison, Australia's outgoing prime minister, has really lost the public trust. He's been really good about, I don't want to say virtue signaling, but that's what he's been doing to the international community. But he's really dropped the ball on, on many um, local Australian disaster relief recovery programs. For instance, there was a, a series of floods um, in eastern Australia in 2022. Um, really, it might be uh, Australia's worst recorded flood disaster um, episode in its history. Um, and he was very slow to respond to that. Um, so he's really lost a lot of the public trust, as I've said. Um, Anthony Albanese, who's the incoming Labor Prime Minister, has a bit more human capital at his disposal than Morrison had at the end of his tenure. But Australians, by and large, are really unhappy with the policies pursued by all the major parties down there, the Liberal and National Labor Parties. Fewer Australians voted for the winning Labor Party than they did in 2019 when the Labour Party lost the election. Um, in 2022, I think less than 33% of all Australians voted for Labour, which is ridiculous. Like in the US system of governance, like if, if one of the two presidential parties in the election got 33%, they're not winning. Oh yeah, you know? right. So there's really not, I mean, independent candidates in Australia, they netted about over, around 7% of the total seats up for election in Australia's House of Representatives. Um, so there's really not that much faith in established politicians down in Australia at the moment. Um, and even worse, the all Labour government, or you know, the Labour they won, their government has not yet released a, a detailed agenda of the policies they will pursue because they can't afford to alienate anyone right now. They have 33% of the popular vote. Um, I really suspect that the Labour government's going to want steeper cuts to national carbon emissions. Um, they've, they've said they want steeper cuts by 2030. Um, I don't know how well that's going to work because Australia needs fossil fuel production, imports and exports to keep its economy going, especially through you know the COVID pandemic, the results from that. I mean, their economy is really taking a wallop. So by and large, kind of summing it up, Australia is going to remain friendly to the U.S., but they're going to be kind of have an aimless and listless domestic policy. Um, for the short term is in like the next three to five years. Go ahead. Yeah, and you know, I guess kind of rotating it back to larger Asia-Pacific picture, you know, one of the other things they're looking at is, you know, putting additional checks and balances on military and intelligence work and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to reduce some of the spending there. But the, the main problem with that is, you know, you still have China banking on your door. Um, That's, you know, we been talking about that a lot. So, you know, this new election, it kind of puts the, you know, the new AUKUS coalition, a new leader, a new key player in that may, is something to watch for the greater Pacific region dynamic as things get going. Uh, my, well, obviously my worry is with how the little information I do know about the Labour Party in Australia, I feel like they would try to figure out a way to do a similar policy to what South Korea did with its previous prime uh, president Moon, where he tried to stay in between the United States and China. He didn't try to anger either of them, and that's something I'm a little bit worried about. 
Well, I don't think Albanese will go out of his way to antagonize China, but he's not. They, Australia is, in terms of foreign military sales, in terms of intelligence collection, we're their, we're their, we're their guys. Like we help them out so much, it's going to be very difficult, especially for someone who's not really concerned by upsetting the alliance system in the Indo-Pacific right now. Like Albanese doesn't want to go towards China. That would be suicide for him. Like a lot of Australians don't like the Chinese, and if he's only got thirty-three percent of the Chinese population, yeah, he doesn't have a choice. He, he, really he has to be very like careful about the policy. It's the same see. thing as what happened in Israel. What was it two years ago when they had their election and it got rid of Benjamin Netanyahu? Mm-hmm. Like they had to do like up several different elections, and it's still they don't. Five. Yeah, they had to do like five different elections, and even still, they don't have like a proper coalition right now. So right, so right now, I mean, there's no one to really craft effective, massive policy changes. So what we're gonna, what we've seen with the Scott Morrison, you know, tenure for the last nine years, it'll be a continuation of that. Mm-hmm. Unless there's some massive war or something which forces policymakers to make changes, but for now, like the Labor Coalition needs to find itself before it can conduct any foreign policy stuff. Go ahead, Smudge. I also don't say nothing. Okay, you, you, you're looking <laughs> over here like, you better shut up. I got time to say nothing. You know, that, that sort of division and debate and things like that, it's going to be a very interesting thing as, you know, the Pacific escalates. You know, just this morning there was an intercept, a Chinese fighter intercepted a Australian plane in the, I think it was the South Pacific region, mm-hmm. you know. Those sorts of close calls and things like that, you know, things will most likely escalate, you know, as Korea heats up, as Taiwan continues to get more and more heated, you know, this is definitely, you know, Australia, whether we like it, you know, even if they have a smaller footprint, they're nevertheless a player in the game in this situation. They can't really leave it, to be honest. No. I don't think, it's, in they the end, they can't take Australia and put it off Even in the end, it's going to, no, I feel like in my you know, this affects Australia's national security more. Like what China does affects Australia's national security more than even like some other countries that have it in there. Mm-hmm. To be honest, because they're right next to the action. Yeah, exactly. It's the same thing when Japan invaded like most of South, all of Southeast Asia, and like a good portion of China. They were right next to it. This affected them no matter what, if they wanted or not. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I agree. But anyways, long and short of it, uh, Australia's got a aimless kind of listless domestic policy um, but just after looking at these elections and what little policy was discussed I firmly believe that um, the US Australia relationship will remain strong um, as the great power competition kind of heats up in the Indo-Pacific region but that's my I think it was about 10 minutes that was my hot take for Australia it was good for the next 20 minutes for the next 20 minutes we'll allow um, Rivas to discuss, <laughs> to discuss the Cubanos. Oh, the freaking Cubans. <laughs> uh, trust me, I do have enough of them in Miami, so. Um, wow. This boy. I think this nation has since 2016. Okay. <laughs> I'm not Go ahead. Anyway, um, so I guess for some, I think what most people perceive Cuba as is just a tropical island that has its battle with communism or whatever. I think that's what most people see of Cuba. What people don't realize is Cuba has a very big intelligence agency. It's known as DGI, mm-hmm. and it does a lot of operations, not just around the world, but especially in the United States. It's had spies operate in the U.S. And, in fact, at one point, like, all of the sources, all of the good sources 
that we had supplying information on Cuba were DGI agents. Mm. So that just shows how good they were back then, especially how they still are even. Uh, I forgot the... But um, with Cuba... What was I going to say? Cuban intelligence. Um, this is a force that was trained by the KGB during the Cold War and was even trained by parts of the Stasi when they East Germany when they were still around. Um, they've oper they operate a lot trying to collect information in the United States, which is very hard because they don't. I don't think they still have an embassy, do they now? I forgot the Cubans. Where? It's weird. I don't know. I don't you think mean, you mean in the U.S. U.S. They I don't know about a, that. I do know they have a massive delegation um, in the U.N. Yeah, they have a U.N. delegation. In and and interestingly enough, um, sources in ODI they've assessed that about half of that delegation is undercover DGI officers. Yeah, but no. The other thing is with the DGIs, they've operated all over Latin America, funding and supporting um, terrorist groups, supporting uh, communist movements. They support FARC. I think they still operate FARC. <laughs> too. And they are heavily, heavily involved right now with the Venezuelan regime. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that they call it national liberation movements, not terrorist movements, right? The Cubans do. But that, that, that responsibility shifted away from the DGI, actually, I think in, God, in the 70s. And that falls under the America Department, or what they call the DA, of the Communist Party of the Cuba Central Committee. So that that's more that has fallen into a completely different segment, and now basically the DGI's responsibility is not to fund terrorism. Well, I'm sure they work with terrorists from time to time. It's to collect intelligence and steal information from the Western powers, Europe, and, and more specifically the United States. So that's more their that's more their huckleberry right now. Samaj is just staring at me, expecting me to say more. And and I can say yeah. I can say another thing. The, the, this also doesn't fall specifically under DGI's purview, but the Cubans have a a, a, map, a, a great ability. They're very good at stealing SIGINT knowledge from uh, U.S. naval vessels. They're very good at, at um, I, I don't know how to describe it, but they are. Very good at conducting counterintelligence um, and electronic warfare activities against the U.S., specifically in, in the Northern Caribbean. Go ahead. Yeah, and one thing that when I was first looking at Cuba is that, you know, their conventional capabilities have atrophied significantly since the Cold mm -hmm. War. I mean, they only have, like, a standing army of, like, 3,000 people. Mm -hmm. they're, they're All their gear, all their, they haven't gotten a new tank since 1963. Out there. This is the, the all their stuff is the, yeah, they, they still got the T sixty the latest model they have is the T sixty two and then you know they got like the old fifties era air defenses. So, you know, first in you know their economy we don't really hear much about it. It's not really too big and capable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at first glance it doesn't look particularly, you know, menacing where you know most of even this podcast, you know, we focus on the heavier hitters mm -hmm. like in, you know. Iraq and Russia, China. This is a much more subtle mm -hmm. capability. You know, you know, it doesn't take that much money to put a put a spy here or there. Or be or in the or a book, yeah. I, I'm gonna someone. I'm gonna say this, like just to quantify what you just said, Brian. Cuba's intelligence organization they only employ around twenty thousand people, but it's still considered one of the best spy enterprises in the world. 
So they, they, they went for quality over quantity, and they're saving money well, doing it. The mm -hmm. Russians still say today, I'm talking about the SVR and the FSB agents, they still, but mostly SVR, they say, they still say that they trust the Cubans more than many of the other agencies that they work with, because mm -hmm. not only have they had their predecessors at KGB train them, but just because they were, they were very efficient at what they do, mm -hmm. especially because we don't expect Cuba to be doing much. I think the most common, most common Americans don't really see Cuba as that much of a threat. They just see it as like, oh, this is just an old grudge we have from the 60s. And it's like, no, they're doing a lot of things in the background. They're very good at hiding it. They're very capable of penetrating key U.S. and DOD targets. That's mm -hmm. what they're good at. Go ahead. On top of that, uh, well, I'll just read it through a few things. But um, what they do is with, the, with their... Um, recruits is that they recruit you right out of college mm. um, primarily interesting enough in social science programs um, so instead of business or economics or anything like that they go straight for social sciences why is that well if you think about it if you look if you get a degree depending on what aspect of social science that you're interested in let's say or particular geographic areas of social science that you're interested in if you if you get someone that studies a particular geographic zone on a collegiate level for four years mm -hmm. or four plus years, um, learning the culture, learning the language, learning the psych the political psychology of a people, learning the how a person's identity has been molded by environmental impacts or social structure or social constructs, um, you'll be, be you'll be able to essentially establish intelligence operations that can successfully blend into a particular community uh, hence why they're able to um, infiltrate u.s intel agencies uh, dod dos uh, homeland security etc because they may have recruited tons of people that are not only studying social sciences um, but also the pathway within their program could be directed towards american culture towards western european cultures um it could be directed towards venezuela um or the bolivar the former bolivar uh, nations um, so then that way by the time that you implement your eight your you send your operatives you don't really have to give them a a, a how-to guide uh, on how to blend in and um kind of be presentable in these nations You've been learning it since you were in college, so it's an automatic thing. Well, that's the case of Anna Montez. She was a Anna Montez was a DIA. Um, I don't know if I should say agent or officer or whatever, but she worked for the DIA. She was a Cuba analyst in the DIA, and she studied Latin America in college. She got recruited, like you just said, she got recruited in college by one of her friends introducing her to a Cuban intelligence agent, and they literally what they what's I remember hearing was. They basically had this initial conversation. They didn't obviously they don't tell them anything of like, oh, I'm work for the Cubans or whatever. They just get create this relationship, and then eventually, like, they try to foster this relationship more. If they feel like this person is capable and they want this person to give in, they'll try to see if they can give them a few little tasks, like, hey, we want your opinion on what's going on here. Be it Venezuela or be it Colombia with the drug trade or whatever. They'll give their analysis. You show that you know your stuff. And they will move further and further. And then as they realize, okay, we want this person, that's when they go in and they say, they put in their full thing and see if they will actually spy. And sometimes they do. Yeah, and just the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, that's like the, 
linchpin of the DOD's ability to collect intelligence. So they collect not just technical intelligence, they collect human intelligence, and they work closely with basically every other agency except for maybe the FBI to do this. So Ana Montez was in a good position to get information, not just from the DIA, but the CIA and almost every other agency in the IC as well. And it's not just, no, and the funny thing with Ana Montez was, this wasn't some random, yeah, she was an analyst. It wasn't some DIA analyst. She was the top analyst for Central America. Mm -hmm. She would be the main person who would be giving out the reports or making, or presenting the information. She yeah. was a she was an agent when she got into the agency and went throughout the entire time there. And remind me this: so Anna Montes, she was found out and incarcerated in two thousand nine. No, when two thousand one. Two thousand one. A few days before nine eleven. Okay. Well, about a, about a decade later, I mean, the Cubans still have a presence. I mean, it was assessed well, in two thousand nine that Cuba has at least two hundred and fifty agents operating in the U.S. Around six to nine are senior agents in the U.S. government. Including mm -hmm. State Department, DIA, and so on. Well, the most more. recent there's case. A, hey, Mira, 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 hey, Mira, come on, come on. <laughs> there's, there's about, a, there's about <laughs> nine, six to nine senior agents of the U.S. government, state and DIA, etc. A dozen academia, and there's around 36 under diplomatic cover in Cuban mission. Now you can go, Mr. Ecuadorian Spice. Well, first off, because someone heard me speak Spanish, now the Cubans are definitely listening to this podcast. Yeah, um, no, they probably started listening when. Called you Ecuadorian Spice. Oh yeah. God, damn. They had they had the censor and everything. Yeah, like, who but it's funny this? though. With 2009, I think that was their most recent case where they did have a there was a, a DGI an agent who was arrested. He was a part of the State Department. Mm -hmm. And that it was, was Myers, wasn't it? What was it Myers? It might have been. I forgot. Yeah. I'm trying to look at the article now. But That's all right. Yeah. Here. Um, but he was a State Department official. I do. That. Yeah, and his wife was helping him too. Yeah, it was Myers. Yeah, I can't remember his first name, but that was the Myers case. Perhaps Michael Myers. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> that would be perfect time to play the music. That's the thing. It's just, they, you could call Cuba's intelligence agencies basically a silent threat because mm -hmm. no one knows they are there, and they are all, and they are probably one of the bigger threats in the U.S. when it comes to. For, yeah, for, for the threat, losing thing, you know, obviously, you know, the conventional assets of, you know, big, big nuclear missiles and massive armies, that's not there. However, I mean, I guess I need to ask you guys more about this, but like, where does that information go to? Because obviously they have access to very sensitive information. Can you clarify? Does it go to, it go to you know, their state, uh, other state powers like Russia, like China, North Korea, Iran, is that who's it going to? It's going to non-state parties like, you know terror groups like Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, you know, any drug cartels. And I think it goes who's more, it going to? I think it would more go towards, I know it definitely goes towards Russia, because they still have a huge relationship with the Russians. Uh, I feel like some of it, depending on what it pertains to, may go to certain drug, like drug organizations that work with Cuba, but I'm mm -hmm. not sure of that at the moment. Yeah. The, the, I'm going to say this, the America Department of the uh, Cuban Communist Party, they do extensive deals with I'm going to say, I'm going to be generous to say non-state actors. Okay. So a lot of this information, I assume, does go to these non-state actors. Um, but I will say, immediately after the collection or uh, stealing of U.S. information or anywhere else, or intelligence, it immediately goes to the Cuban government. So I'm going to say SIGINT, acoustics intelligence, uh, naval counterintelligence, all that stuff that's collected by 
the Military Counterintelligence Department uh, within Cuba's um, Ministry of Revolutionary Armed Forces. That immediately goes up to Cuban policymakers. Mm -hmm. And then they, they assess, well, what are U.S. forces trying to do? What's their standpoint? Um, and so on and so forth. Hopefully that, answered, yeah. hopefully that answered the question a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, just with what we do know, you know, close relationship with the Russians, maybe selling them information, maybe just giving it to them out of hand. You know, that's that's a pretty significant threat. You know, if Cuban intelligence is able to deliver a when and where of where sensitive Ukrainian aid is going, mm -hmm. you know, that would be, and they, they're able to bomb it, or worse, seize it. Mm -hmm. That's really not good. Yeah. You know, or, you know, things escalate. You know, the Russians decide to go full send and decide to invade Poland. You know, it's unlikely, but they threatened it repeatedly. Oh, they love to threaten Poland. They love to threaten Poland, even though it makes no sense from their sheer readiness perspective. Oh, but yeah, I think I'm they kind of get off on it, you know, because <laughs> they have problems with Poland. <laughs> I guess they years. Do. That's true. That's true. But yeah, you know, things escalate, you know, being Cubans, being, Cuban operas being able to feed Russians, troop movements, locations, readiness statuses. That's mm -hmm. pretty, that's a pretty significant threat. You know, even if they themselves are not the main bad guy, their, their ability to just sneak in and out unnoticed, being able to get crucial pieces of information, being at the right place at the right time, it's, it's still a pretty significant threat. It's interesting because, um, I don't want to beat this down too bad because uh, we've been talking about this for about 15 minutes now. Um, but I wanted to use the case study of Cuba's presence in Venezuela to kind of um, highlight some of their intelligence strategies on how they saturate um, a government, essentially. Um, and it really goes back to when Chavez... Um, became president um, and coincidentally though Fidel um, originally did not support Chavez uh, he supported Chavez's uh, opposition however um, there were notions that potentially Fidel Castro uh, would be able to work with Chavez and then this goes back to like 1992 um, and at that time once Chavez one, he went to Havana, and then Fidel essentially, you know, embraced him. It was like, uh, even though he had, even though Castro supported the sitting Venezuelan president of uh, Perez, um, but they knew that Chavez had a charismatic um, ego to him, um, and so because of that. Cuba started to really invest in Chavez's ideology uh, to get to him personality-wise rather than his actual policy structure since they did not support him at first. But they realized that essentially Chavez is quite gullible in some instances that he could be essentially um, influenced. Mm. So Chavez, not Chavez, Castro was able to essentially position himself to become a mentor to Chavez on how to do things, how to constrict the governments, how to um, take control of this notion of like a revolutionary national liberation type thing, um, a call to like Bolivar um, ideology mixed with Venezuelan-based uh, yeah. communism, really right? Exactly. So after that, once that occurred, um, 
Chavez started to provide economic support to Havana, primarily oil. Um, however, at that time, what Cuba started to do was after there was a failed coup um, that the Cubans essentially sought to sponsor on the low and it was found out that they were behind it and the coup failed, um, there was immense um, pressure on the Cuban embassy in Venezuela. They stopped selling them oil. Um, however... Wait, the, coup, the coup that happened in 2002? That was... Wait, are you trying to say that was influenced by the Cuban government? It wasn't directly influenced. However, they were participants. That's new information for me. So I'm yep. actually curious. Um, you can read an article on a geopolitical monitor. I will look into that. Which later. is right here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so it says, I mean, right here, I'll read it from the increasingly radical and transit position assumed by the Bolivarian regime alienated several sectors of Venezuelan society, including the middle class, the local business community, and some factions of the country's top military echelons and intelligence apparatus who were deeply distrustful of Cuban influence because of the aforementioned historical precedents. This motivated an attempt to remove Chavez from power. Um, the coup ultimately f uh, failed, but during critical hours, opposition forces surrounded the Cuban embassy, and the leaders that briefly assumed power decided to interrupt the flow of Venezuelan oil to Cuba. What matters is that direct Cuban influence, either overt or clandestine, was already an acknowledged political reality by all relevant stakeholders. Um, from there, as we gradually seen towards the end of Chavez, and then now, especially Don Maduro, Cuban military personnel started to arrive at Venezuelan bases. Now, after Maduro came into power, the game kind of changed because compared to Chavez, Maduro is not a very charismatic no, man. No, he's not. He's not, he doesn't have that same popularity as Chavez did. And that's why a lot of his regime, especially during the harder times with, the, with inflation going on, um, his main goal has been to stay in power. And that, honestly, in my view, I think that's allowed for the Cubans to go get even closer and closer into the political, like main political circles of Venezuela. That's allowed them to gain more control in the certain parts of Venezuela's uh, government and even economics in some portions. Yes. That's all that can be said. That's, that's I was going to get to that. I, I'm sorry. I had yeah, to say yeah. it. I'm sorry. He's, he's fed up. I was, <laughs> I was going to get to that part. But continuing, um, once they started to arrive at Venezuelan bases, that's when Cuba started to implement their ideological military trainings. Um, and then as that occurred, um, Cuban agents began to assist the Venezuelan intelligence community on civilian and military branches, and then they remodeled the entire structure and then began to purge officials that were deemed as counter-revolutionary. Um, in some places, it's been alleged that Cuban specialists were active in the Venezuelan presidential situation room, involved in tasks that are related to protecting the regime and monitoring relevant political um, developments. Um, due to Chavez's paranoia, at this point, he felt that he had no choice but to turn fully to the Cubans since he no longer trusted a lot of the Venezuelan government sectors. Um, so then from there, that's when Cuban quote-unquote advisors began showing up at various embassies and ministries. Um, the Bolivarian elites of Venezuela started to receive Cuban bodyguards and doctors. 
um, the Venezuelan military presence in Cuba um, became negligent um, since, it, since as it was all entailed, I guess, like an attache office. Uh, basically, in this in this form, since Chavez and Anthony Maduro, Cuba started to establish a strategic, deeply ingrained chokehold on Venezuela's security, um, military, in some cases, minister a uh, ministry um, apparatuses within their elites, and then from there. They're able to essentially, um, in some cases, dictate or determine the future projections of Venezuelan politics. That's a favor of Cuba. No, I, kind of from there, I can just see more of the opposite because going back to talking about Chavez, comparing Chavez and Maduro, um, Chavez, he was more the guy who wanted to be the person who had this huge mass of influence in Latin America. He's the one who influenced the pink tide in like other countries like Brazil, Argentina, Ecuador. Well, yeah. And then Maduro, like we just said earlier, he doesn't really have, he's not, doesn't really have that characteristic. He just wants to stay in power. And the Cubans see that, which they, which is why, I mean, if you look at it, they were behind the scenes when it came to Chavez. Chavez wanted to be the front man. He wanted to, everything happened, is happening now is because me. Especially once, you know, oil and gas prices soared. Yeah. Um, and oh, there's they, coffers. Yeah, um, the Venezuelans had a lot of power. Right. So it was one thing. So Chavez went berserk and spent it. <laughs> it's more than spend. He was like, oh, we got $100 million for this oil export. Let's spend $200 million on this. That's so, what they did. Exactly. Um, but see, the Cubans knew that. They understood by, under, by understanding Chavez's psychology and his personality, they knew the limitations that they needed to put on themselves so that their operations are not undone. With Maduro, since he is no Chavez, Maduro is much, I won't say laid back, but he's not the type of person to be flamboyant with the whole public uh, perceptions and public diplomacy. The Cubans know this, hence why we, there's now, there's no second guessing the presence of Cuban security personnel, uh, military, uh, attaches, paramilitaries, etc. They're part of his literal bodyguard um, service. They're literally part of it. Strategic patience goes a long way. It goes a long it way. Creates a, in my view, it creates a proto-colony. But... And that's essentially what it is. So, in this case, we've been talking about this um, it's about 55 minutes now, so we're gonna, we're gonna end this episode now. Um, and then most likely we'll come back because um, I do want to do some more podcasts sir, on South America. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know nothing below Texas. So. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to be doing well if it's that hard. I don't know nothing below Texas other than Che Guevara and Pinochet. But, um, and Gatulio Vargas. But, oh, um, <laughs> oh no, I have enough to say about him and Juan Domingo. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll definitely, or, um, Peron. Oh, God. <laughs> we'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> so with that being said, we're going to end it uh, there. Uh, thank you all for listening. Much love.